Hey everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so glad you found me. If you've been here before, thanks so much for returning. I can't express how much I appreciate your love and support. I am so happy to be back. If you follow my channel, you know that I've been on a three-month hiatus from posting videos. I'm super excited to be back but I was gone because I was living in Georgia and I moved to New York and that's over an 800 mile move. It's a lot. And then when I got to New York, I had to renovate an entire room to get my stream room up. You can see it in the background here, but it's not 100% done. Like this area is done, but it's not 100% done. In about two weeks, I'll make a video, like one of those shorts, and I'll do like a little walkthrough of my room once it's 100% done. So if you're interested in that, you can see it in about two weeks. But I am so excited to be back up and running. You have no idea. I have so much cool stuff planned. I have six videos fully researched, ready to go, locked and loaded, and I didn't spend my time unwisely. Like, I have been thinking about this channel since the last time I posted a video. I just couldn't make videos, which is painful for me but I have six videos ready to go. That means that I am definitely not missing a week of uploading for at least the next six weeks. I can't wait to continue making videos for you guys. And I really hope that you continue to come back and watch videos and hang out with me. You guys have no idea how much it means to me that you come back my favorite part about doing this is interacting with you guys. I love when I see comments on my videos, even throughout the three months that I wasn't posting. I have comments on my videos. I can talk to you guys. I love the interaction. I love people that are supporters. I absolutely love it. I can't wait to see how you guys are going to react now that I'm going to be constantly uploading videos again. I'm so excited. And I hope that you guys come along for the ride and enjoy. This week's Mafia member is somebody that I've talked about a lot in my recent videos. I say recent, but like the recent ones that I uploaded, okay? Not like, oh yeah, I just uploaded it a week ago. I know, I know, it's been a while. But I talked about this gangster a lot in all of my videos, so I definitely had to give him his own episode, and I was actually curious. I wanted to look into him because I've always known about his death scene. I've known who he is, but I didn't know anything that he did. His death pictures are probably one of the top mafia hits as far as popularity goes, but honestly, I just know the picture. I didn't know anything about him, and the fact that he's as famous as he is, like, he has to be interesting. From the things that I mentioned about him on my Frank Costello video, he doesn't really seem like a good guy, but I just want to know if that's the case, okay? I know he sounds like a bad guy, but I want to know if he is a bad guy. It could just be a case of like a mafia member doing what mafia members do. Or it could be a case of just being a piece of crap and having bad ideals and just sucking. So let's find out together which one it is. was born February 21st, 1910 in East Harlem, New York. 
East Harlem used to be Little Italy. It has since been moved to downtown Manhattan, but way back in the day, East Harlem used to be Little Italy. Little Italy was a lot bigger than it is now. He was born in a tenement building in East Harlem, which means his mom didn't go to a hospital. She just like plopped him out on the living room floor. Carmine was one of five children that his parents, Vincenzo, James Galante, and Vincenza Russo had together, which let me say, I absolutely love Vincenzo and Vincenza, okay? I love those like cutesy wootsy names that like, they definitely didn't intend to do that, you know? They weren't named that so that they could match their spouse, but they just so happened, Vincenzo and Vincenza just so happened to get together. And I think that's cute. Vincenzo and Vincenza immigrated to America from Castella Mare del Golfo, Sicily, in 1906. On Carmine's birth certificate, Vincenzo was listed as a laborer at the age of 28. He's listed on other FBI documents as a fisherman, so I think that he was a fisherman in Italy, and then he came to America and began working as a laborer. Vincenzo was listed at 25 years old when he was born, and she does not have an occupation listed, so she was a homemaker. They had one child before him, which was Angelina, and they had three children after him, so Peter, Samuel, and Josephine are all younger than him. Angelina Galante was born on December 3rd, 1907. Josephine Galante was born August 14th, 1926. And to be 100% honest, Peter and Samuel Galante are absolutely impossible to find any information on. Apparently, the co-founder and COO of LinkedIn shares the same name. It's obviously not the same guy, but he has the same name. So LinkedIn dude lives in Japan, but when you Google the name, that's really all that comes up. I can't find anything. Like, I find one mention of Samuel. I don't find one mention of Peter Galante. I only see Samuel mentioned once. That's it. Never again. And even that is such a small little thing. So I really don't know anything. There's also a Samuel Galante that is an audible reader, a photographer, an adjunct professor at Farmingdale State College. So it's a pretty common name, I guess. Samuel Galante, his brother, is mentioned in numerous FBI documents, and we'll go over his involvement a little bit, but as I said, I really don't have much on him. Even so much as finding out what his date of birth is, is absolutely impossible. Doesn't exist. If anybody read something that I didn't read or saw something that I didn't see, and you know information on these guys, please let me know below, because I searched high and low, I couldn't find it, so if you can find it, let me know. Thank you. Carmine was an absolute nightmare. From the time he was born, this kid was a nightmare. As a kid, he went to public school 79 and public school 120. He went to these schools until he was 14 years old, at which time he was kicked out of public school and he was put into reform school as an incorrigible defendant. Can you imagine being called a defendant at 14 years old? Like, what do you think is gonna happen when you label a 14-year-old a defendant? Like, do you think maybe you had a hand in what went on to happen? I think so. At this time, he created a street gang in his neighborhood, and he started getting involved in mafia affairs. So he was one of those kids, like, if you ever saw, like, Goodfellas, he was one of those kids that at a very young age, he was hanging around the wise guys, he was getting coffee, he was shining their shoes, he was going and getting the newspaper, just doing odd little jobs and hanging out around the mafia members. This usually served a few purposes. It was a show of respect that made members and like guys 
in the crew that like mattered, they were waited on hand and foot by these kids. It also helps if you ever want to be made in the future. So instead of you just popping up at 18, 19 years old as like a random person, you're a kid that grew up in the family. They know you from a young age. They don't have to really probe much into you. They know who you are. They know who your parents are. They know who your family is. And if you were to pop up at 18, 19 years old, it would be a lot more difficult to get into the life than somebody that just lived their entire life in it. Again, if you look at Goodfellas, like Henry Hill, he was in the family from like age 14. And when he got busted when he was like 16 years old, yeah, everybody in his little crew was there to like congratulate him for not snitching and everything. So it had its benefits even as a kid. You know, you're waiting on people hand and foot and everything. But at the end of the day, it's definitely beneficial to be hooked up with a mafia crew, even at a young age. So he goes on to reform school. And by the seventh grade at 15 years old, he he is fully done with school. He can't be bothered. He drops out altogether. He's done. By that age, he had also already formed a street gang in Little Italy. The gang was connected to the mafia. They're running alcohol during Prohibition era. They're making money. And they're a pretty successful little gang. Carmine was arrested in 1924 at 14 years old for stealing cheap, stupid little things that he definitely could have, like, bought. It doesn't really make sense why he stole it. Maybe he wanted, like, the thrill of stealing. I don't know, because these stupid little things like it was so easy for him to afford it he had a gang he had money in his pocket there was no need for him to steal these stupid little things so because he's a minor it doesn't go on his permanent record i don't think to this day you can go and find that on his record but what it does do is get him kicked out of school so this is what made him an incorrigible defendant Galante was arrested and convicted of assault on December 22nd, 1926. He was sentenced to two and a half years in jail. After this arrest, his parents straight up turned their back on him. They were in over their head. They had no idea what to do. And they pretty much were just like, you know what? We give up. We did everything we could do. We have no idea anymore. Like, we're done. What else can we do? We're not, we're not dealing with this anymore. Have a nice life, kid. Stay the fuck out of my life. Which is really sad. At 15, years old. He's out on his own. He doesn't have parents anymore. As you would expect from any kid that is involved in the mafia at 14 years old and kicked out and disowned by his parents at 15, by the time he hit 20, he's officially in the mafia. He's working as an enforcer for the Bonanno family. He got out of jail on January 18th, 1930. When he got out of jail, he went to work at O'Brien Fish Company at 105 South Street in New York City as a fish sorter. That's got to be a really smelly job. I can't see that being like enjoyable. He still had this job in 1930 when he was 20 years old. And at that time, he was arrested for robbery on December 24th, 1930. And that's after being on the streets for less than a year. He was indicted and he was paroled to the Catholic Society on January 18th. 1930, so he didn't end up doing any jail time for it. I don't know what kind of pull you have to have at the church for the church to take responsibility for you. Like, he literally didn't go to jail so he could go to the church. Like, imagine the pull you have at church for somebody to say, like, okay, yeah, I'll make sure he doesn't kill anybody. I'm sure it was somebody in his crew that went and like reached out and made that happen, but Jesus. He continued working for the fish company until 1939 when he left to go start working at the Lubin Artificial Flower Company at 270 West Broadway in New York City. 
He had worked there briefly between 1923 and 1926, but it was kind of a side gig. He was working at the fish market, so he used the flower company as like a secondary job. If Carmine was working at an actual flower shop, it's pretty safe to assume that dude was connected to the mafia. So maybe that's like a stereotype, like maybe the flower industry back then was like what the garbage industry and waste management is nowadays. Like it's something that you say it and you know like okay you're really in the mafia, you know? Like there's no such thing as a waste management person that's not involved some way in the mafia. So maybe flower shops were that back then. While he was in jail, it was noted that he had contracted and been treated for gonorrhea in 1930, which, ouch. It was also noted that 1921 wasn't the greatest year for Galante's relationship with cars. First, he got into a car accident and he was hospitalized. He was hospitalized at Postgraduate Hospital in New York City. Later that year, he was hospitalized at St. Mark's Hospital with a fractured ankle after being run over by a car. Personally, after that kind of year, I would stay the fuck away from vehicles, but he doesn't. I would. I damn sure would. You would not catch me near a vehicle after that, but he just went about his day. Galante was five foot five. He was around 160 pounds. And every time you see him described, he's described as a short, stout man. One thing Galante came to be known for was his dead-eyed stare. People would say that everyone, including police officers, were creeped the fuck out by his stare. They said that you could tell he was a killer just by looking him in the eye. Ralph Salerno, a former NYPD detective, once said, Of all the gangsters that I've met personally, and I've met dozens of them in my years, there were only two that, when I looked them straight in the eye, I decided I wouldn't want them to be really personally mad at me. Aniello Della Croce was one, and Carmine Galante was the other. They had bad eyes. I mean, they had the eyes of killers. You could see just how frightening they were, the frigid glare of a killer. It wasn't just the stare that he came to be known for, though. It was definitely what was behind the stare as well. He was an absolute psychopath. There's one story where he walked into a bar, and a girl that was there already had said something innocent that pissed him off. He picked up a plate of boiling hot pasta and threw it in her face. He permanently disfigured this poor girl for the rest of her life because of something stupid that she said. And it wasn't, there's no way it was something like super insulting. It was probably like him hitting on her and her being like, yeah, no thanks, dude. And he just permanently disfigures this girl forever. One time his daughter was dating a dude that wasn't Sicilian. He absolutely did not want his daughter dating anybody that wasn't Sicilian, but that just made the dude more attractive to his daughter. When he sent dudes after the boyfriend and scared the boyfriend away, it worked. But she ended up trying to unalive herself. She took a massive overdose and she ended up being saved so she didn't die, but the fact that he was willing to go through those lengths and have her end up where she did just shows how much he doesn't care. In August of 1930, Galante was arrested for the murder of Walter D. Castilla, a police officer that Galante had killed when him and three other men ran up into a warehouse to rob the owner while he had all of his cash out of the safe. D. Castilla had been sent to watch over the owner, Martin Weinstein, and the shoe factory because Weinstein was making payroll, and that was a dangerous time. There was a lot of people that 
pulled robberies around that time. So the police would actually send somebody to the warehouse to kind of protect him when he handed out payroll. Weinstein and the officer sat in Weinstein's office on the sixth floor, making out individual envelopes. Four dudes ran up in the office, and when D. Castillo went to reach for his gun, they shot him. He was sent by a sergeant to assist in payroll, so I'm assuming that he was in uniform, so you can't even say that they didn't know it was a cop. They definitely knew it was a cop. They just didn't care. Like, they killed this man, and they did not care that it was a cop. D. Castillo took two bullets to the chest and one to the leg, and he ended up taking three of the six bullets that were shot. Honestly, the crazy thing is, is that this might have actually just been a hit. They entered the office, they killed D. Castilla, and they left, and they didn't touch the $7,500 in cash that was sitting on the desk. That doesn't really seem like a good robbery, does it? Everybody says it was a failed robbery, but you would think that if it was a robbery, they would have grabbed the cash on the way out, so I feel like it might have just been a hit. Because even if, like, oh shit, we have to kill somebody, you would still grab some cash. They didn't touch any. They just shot the man and left. Galante was arrested along with Michael Consolo and Angelo Presenzano. Presenzano and Galante remained close for the rest of Galante's life. And he was even the best man at Galante's wedding. Consolo ended up becoming Galante's bodyguard. So this was a pretty tight-knit group. Consolo died in April of 1968 after having been on the wrong side of the Banana Wars. So because this hit slash robbery, because it happened in broad daylight, there was a lot of witnesses. But the police ended up not being able to gather enough evidence because he had already built up a reputation and everybody on the streets knew who he was. So even though there was multiple eyewitnesses to this murder, nobody was willing to testify. So they couldn't gather enough evidence to bring it to trial or charge him. He was never even indicted for this. Later that year, in December of 1930, he was arrested again after trying to kill yet another cop. This whole scenario... I can literally picture it in my head. Like, I can picture it as a movie. This has to have been made into a movie at some point because this scenario is exactly what you would expect to see in a major motion picture. So... Let me set the scene for you. Galante and two other people are robbing a truck. This cop, Joseph Minahan, he comes up on them. And I don't even know if he saw what was happening or if he just stumbled upon this. But this guy's a cop and he stumbles upon three men that are actively robbing a truck. So when the cop comes up on them, they get into a firefight and Galante empties his entire weapon on this guy. He caught Minahan's coat a bunch of times and he got him once in the thigh, but he didn't get anywhere significant. A six-year-old little girl was caught in the gunfire and she ended up getting shot. But everybody involved in the firefight lived. Now, these four guys had gotten there in a car and when the three guys that he was with went to go start the car, the car wouldn't start. I'm telling you, you just picture this as a scene. The car doesn't start. So a truck is passing by and these three guys jump on the truck and they get away from the cops. Now Galante is running, running, running. He's trying to catch up with his three cohorts, but he can't catch up with them because he ends up tripping and falling on his face. And right there is the part in the movie where everybody sits there and says like, oh, that's so unrealistic. There's no way he would fall. 
That doesn't happen. That happened. Galante fell right on his face and he got caught by the cop and he was arrested. This is the crime that led to Galante doing 12 and a half years in prison. That's a long prison sentence. He was officially arrested for this crime on January 23rd, 1931, and he was arrested for attempted robbery in the first degree. He was sentenced to 12 and a half years in state prison, two years, three months, and 22 days in Sing Sing. While he was in jail for this arrest, a psychiatric examination was carried out on Galante. The examination stated that Carmine was dull emotionally. It pretty much said that he was really, really slow, that he had the mental age of a 14-year-old, and that he had an IQ of 90. That's not on the level of, like, mental incapability, but it's pretty typical for 5- to 14-year-olds to have an IQ that ranges from 86 to 115. And for adults, it's pretty popular for somebody to have between a 96 and a 105 IQ. So him having a 90 IQ, it's not stupid. He's average. When you're looking at an IQ test, it's worth noting that an IQ of less than 70 indicates that there's probably a developmental learning disability. And an IQ of more than 130 indicates giftedness. So Carmine falls in a box exactly where he should be. So I don't know why they said he was dull emotionally. Maybe because he's not stupid, but he's just like, he doesn't react. Like sociopathic tendencies, you know, he doesn't have emotions. The psychiatric report notes that he was shy and he had absolutely no knowledge of current world events and other things that were like considered to be common knowledge at the time. I'm going to read off the exact diagnosis because I think it's so interesting how it's worded. So I'm just going to read it off to you exactly. The doctor concluded that he was neuropathic, psychopathic personality, emotionally dull, and indifferent with a prognosis of being poor. I've never seen a doctor make a diagnosis of being poor. Like he literally said like, hey, this dude's poor. Like, what? They literally just said like, oh, well, he's poor and stupid. Like, what? What a time to be alive. Can you imagine being diagnosed by a doctor as being poor? So even though he's given a 12 and a half year sentence, it looks like at first that the sentence is going to be suspended. And the only time that he was actually going to have to serve was the time that he was delinquent from Sing Sing. Pretty much what that means is like, okay, he got sentenced the first time to be at Sing Sing and they paroled him. And that's pretty much like a, well, we'll give you time off if you stay out of trouble. I've gotten a lot of those in my life. Like, oh, we'll give you this punishment. And if you stay out of trouble, we won't give you anything further. It's like, you know, your first strike kind of thing. But they didn't want to make him do 12 and a half years. So they put him in for at Sing Sing and they said, hey, if you stay out of trouble, we won't enforce that 12 and a half year sentence. It'll be like suspended. It's there. It's always a looming threat. But as long as you stay out of trouble, we won't make you do it. Well, obviously, he can't stay out of trouble. That's silly. He can't. Oh, you're joking. No, he doesn't stay out of trouble. So that's the sentence that he had been given the first time. So now that he pulled this crime off, now they're like, oh, hey, you didn't stay out of trouble. You shot a cop. So now they're saying like, okay, now you got to go finish the time that you were supposed to do the first time because we suspended that sentence saying as long as you don't get in trouble, then you got in trouble. So now you have to go live out the rest of that sentence. So now that he has to finish the time out at Sing Sing, the 12 and a half year sentence is being suspended. So like originally his Sing Sing sentence was suspended. And then now they're saying, hey, you didn't stay out of trouble. You got to 
go finish the Sing Sing time, but this 12 and a half year sentence will suspend that. So now he goes and he finishes up his time at Sing Sing, he does the entire amount that he was supposed to do originally, and he's out by October 3rd, 1932. He's brought back to jail July 30th, 1934 for operating a large illegal alcohol still at 71 Wanzer Avenue in Inwood, Long Island, New York. Which lines up because the Bananos usually operate on Long Island, so it, it makes sense that he would be in Inwood. May 1st, 1939, he's paroled and back on the street. And at this point, he's done about eight years of that 12 and a half year sentence. It's actually pretty wild that he gets out on parole because while he was in jail, he was given an additional three years in 1938 because he was involved in a stabbing that led to the death of Joseph Degaius. It looked Looks like he wasn't really involved. He just knew who did it. He saw it and he wouldn't rat. That alone, just knowing who did it and not giving them up, got him another three years in prison. But the only reason he was allowed to get out on parole is because the warden of Clifton State Prison wrote a nice little note that said that he didn't really have anything to do with the stabbing. He just wouldn't give the person up. I'm sure the family paid a very nice amount to that warden to write that letter, but it got written and he got out on parole, so... On November 23rd, 1943, he's arrested again and brought to jail as a parole violator. It looks like this parole violation arrest is in connection with Carlo Tresca, but since he hadn't actually been charged, that's where the extra time went. So he's brought to jail again on November 23rd, 1943. Now, he's supposed to do three years because he still has three years on that suspended sentence. So he's supposed to do three years, but he doesn't. He ends up doing a little under a year. The extra time kind of went away because they brought him in as a parole violator in connection to the murder of Carlo Tresca, but they had no evidence at all, so he really didn't even violate parole, and they kind of were just holding him, hoping that they could get something on him to charge him with the murder, but they never were able to do that, so they couldn't hold him for the whole three years that he had suspended sentence because he didn't do anything. He was originally ordered to serve a full term of 12 and a half years. He had only done nine, so now he's looking at a little over three years. That's where the three years comes from. He was sent to Clifton Prison again in Danamora, New York, and his sentence is supposed to be done by March 20th, 1945. So he really doesn't have that much time, and the grand scheme of things. You know, he's done a lot of time already. He's got less than two full years to finish off there. That's nothing after doing the amount of years he's already done. But at the same time, he doesn't want to sit in prison. So when he has the chance to get out, obviously he takes it. Now at this point, his lawyers head up the courts because they're like, hey, I'm confused here. It looks like he's not really getting credit for the time that he was on parole. He's supposed to be out of here. We don't even know why he's in jail. Like, you're trying to charge him with the Carlo Tresca murder, but you don't have enough evidence, so you have him sitting in jail for nothing, and you didn't give him credit for the time that he was on parole and you were supposed to. They start getting into this big debacle on how much time is actually owed, and this sets off something that starts going down with all prisoners in New York. 
because all of the jails hadn't been giving prisoners credit for the time that they were out on parole, and they're supposed to. So now not only Galante is being re-looked at, but every prisoner in New York is being re-looked at based on the amount of time that they had parole. So pretty much anybody that's in on a parole violation, their entire sentence is being re-looked at because of Galante. So he does his one year, he gets out, yay, now he's gotten credit for all the time he was on parole, and his slate is wiped clean at this point. He has no time that's suspended, they can't take him in on XYZ, he's good to go. On February 3rd, 1941, he's inducted into the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 856. That's another industry that the mafia has always been very entrenched in, is longshoremen's. Albert Anastasia actually worked on the docks as a longshoreman. It was a way that they monitored the incoming people to make sure that there was no hostile immigrants coming in during World War II. I went over that whole thing in the Lucky Luciano video, so if you're interested in that, definitely go check that out. Out, but I am not going through that again. His brother, Sam Galante, had already been a member of the union and he sponsored Carmine to come on board. Now, as I said in the beginning, Sam Galante is absolutely unavailable. I can't find any information on him at all. So this is probably the only time that you ever see either one of his brothers come up is Sam Galante getting him into the Longshoremen's Union. Now, while Galante is out of jail, he develops a new nickname, Lilo. Cigarello is cigar in Italian. And this man literally had a cigar in his mouth 24-7. You never saw him without him having a cigar in his mouth. Because nobody ever saw him without a cigar in his mouth, people started calling him Lilo as like a shortened term of Cigarello. And Lilo is actually like the term that Italians, it's like a slang term for cigar in Italian. So Lilo it is. This is his nickname, but he also goes by other aliases. He went by Carmine Galanto with an O at the end. He went by Galanti with an I at the end. He went by Joseph Russo at one point, and he goes by Charles Druno at one point. So he's just using different names. He, you know, sometimes he doesn't want to be associated with what he's doing. So while he's working in the Longshoremen's Union, he has a Coast Guard pass, which is just absolute gold to the mafia. makes smuggling anything in a lot easier. So when he's smuggling drugs in, when he's smuggling anything in, it's a lot easier when you have a Coast Guard pass. It's it's kind of like having a PBA card or like a military ID in any place other than where the military is. That's to say that if you live in a military town and you show your military ID, it doesn't mean anything. Cops are the absolute, by far, worst enemy of the military in military towns. But if you go somewhere that the military isn't, say, like, I was in Georgia active duty, and then I came to New York, and I showed my active duty card, and it was gold. Like, they couldn't touch me. I came into New York, I had a car that had expired plates, expired registration, expired inspection, everything was expired. I should have gotten arrested when I got pulled over in New York. Like, I literally drove to New York, and before I even had a chance to get to my house, I got pulled over. And I showed my active duty ID, and they're like, oh, you're active duty? (laughs) Have a good day. And I'm like not used to this because when I'm in Georgia and I'm talking to the cops, they hate military. They get mad if you show your military ID. One time, I'm sorry, I'm going to stray off of the topic for a second, but one time I got pulled over and I was going like 80 in a 30. It was bad. Like it was one of those speed trap places. Like it was a highway, but the speed limit was 30. So I got pulled over. I think I was like arguing 
I was doing something. So I got pulled over and the cop comes up and he's asking me, because I'm in uniform, so he knows I'm in the military. So he's like, why are you going back? Do you have formation? He's trying to beat me. And I'm like, I don't have formation. I just didn't even realize the speed I was going. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I have to be at formation or something. That's not the case. I just didn't realize what the speed was that I was going. So he goes back to his car and he comes back and he's like, I'm going to let you go and not write you a ticket because you're the first person I've pulled over today that didn't show me their military ID. D card. And I'm like, well, fuck, like, thank God I'm in uniform. Because if I wasn't in uniform, I 100% would have been showing my military ID. But it wouldn't have mattered because everybody that did show their military ID got a ticket. So yeah, trust me, a military ID is gold in a place that the military isn't. You go to New York where the military really doesn't exist. It's a good thing. But in Georgia, bad thing. Don't ever pull out your military ID card in Georgia. So having a Coast Guard pass, that is kind of the same thing as having, you know, a military ID in, in New York. You get away with anything. It's it's a PBA card. It's just a get out of jail free card. Now with this job, a kind of cool thing is that he was kind of like a wandering traveler. Like he didn't have one set base, which is really cool for somebody that gets in trouble because your offenses don't stack up. You know, like if you are at one place and you get in trouble four times, they're going to bring up the previous three times on that fourth time. But he works at Pier 14. He works at Pier 21 as a stevedore. So he's switching positions. He's doing all kinds of different things. So his offenses aren't stacking up. So this is a really good thing for him. He worked at the Cuba Mail Steamship Company. He worked for New York and Puerto Rican Steamship Companies. And he's just going all over the place working wherever he's needed as a longshoreman. So this is the perfect position for him. So in February of 1941, he gets inducted into the Union. And in September of 1941, he starts working as a handyman. So he's a handyman for General Electric Plating Company at 176-180 Grand Street in New York City. A lot of buildings in New York City, they'll have multiple addresses because the building is very large and it has multiple entrances and each entrance to that building will have its own address. So like 176 to 180, it's all one building, but it has multiple entrances and each entrance will be its own address. So that's where he's working. Um, so I think that this is like a side gig. I'm not really sure if it's part of his job or if it's like a side gig, the handyman job. This company is owned by Frank Garofolo, a man that I'm going to talk a lot about later, but one that the NYPD could never officially link to Galante as having a relationship with. They tried, they couldn't. I'm going to talk about him later, but just know that the NYPD consistently tried to prove a relationship between the two and they could not. This is about the time that he starts jumping around jobs a lot because August 17th, 1942, he's working at Knickerbocker Trucking Company at 520 Broadway in you guessed it, New York City. At this trucking company, he's working for Nate Metzaveski as a helper on the vehicles. In 1936, Genovese fled the country for Naples. I'm gonna go into that a little bit more later. If you watched the other videos, you can kind of skip this because I went over it in the other videos. But just know that this right here is the point that Genovese is no longer in the United States. Genovese is busy right now bankrolling the Prime Minister of Italy, Benito Mussolini. He invested millions upon millions of dollars into 
his government and did whatever he could to help Benito Mussolini. I don't know if you could tell by my tone, but I hate him. On January 11th, 1943, Carmine gets a call from Italy. Now, this call is Genovese ordering him to take care of a problem that Daddy Nazi is having. Mussolini is all pissy because there's this journalist that's an Italian journalist, but he's in America, and his name is Carlo Tresca, and Mussolini does not want Carlo Tresca alive anymore. At this time, both Garofolo and Galante both belong to the Casella Marisi gang, which is the most powerful gang in New York City at the time. By this point, Galante had become Genovese's official hitman. The NYPD had pinned at least 80 murders on him, but he hadn't been indicted on one. Not one. Except the attempted murder of the police officer. He was indicted on that. But for the NYPD to say that this man has unalived 80 people, 80 people, and not one charge against him, like, that's that's pretty dope. Come on. Like, we have to give that to him. That's dope. It's not dope that he killed people. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is nobody caught him. So I think it's dope that he was able to get away. I don't I don't like cops, so I don't know. I'm a bad frame of reference. Don't. I, I'm a bad influence. Carlo Tresca was born and raised in Italy. He was an editor for a socialist weekly called Il Germe in Abruzzo. His opinions, which were extremely radical, almost led to his imprisonment. To avoid going to jail for his political opinions, he emigrated to Philadelphia in 1904 because he was on the brink. They were about to throw him in jail. In Philadelphia, he was elected secretary of the Italian Socialist Federation of North America pretty quickly after he arrived in 1904. So he arrived in 1904 and he's elected into the this position in 1904. He stayed in that position for the next three years, taking on additional roles as the editor of Il Proletario, the official newspaper of the Italian Socialist Federation. As time went on, his writing about political views kind of turned into rants. His writing became more and more extreme, and he soon started calling himself an anarchist. He left his position at Il Proletario in 1907 to publish his own newspaper, which he called La Plebe, which he transferred to Pittsburgh. In that newspaper, he talked about his ideas regarding like Italian miners and mill workers and, and the working class of Italy, and he did that all from West. Pennsylvania. Two years later, Tresca became the editor of L'Avenir, which means the future. The L is like the when there's an A. L'Avenir. But the word is Avenir. He stayed with this publication until it was suppressed by the Espionage Act during World War One. So they were serious. The government did not want this coming out. They suppressed the newspaper. They literally said, no, freedom of speech is not a thing. The Espionage Act now exists, so you can no longer say that. He made a lot of career moves after that. Eventually, he became one of the most well-known figures in the Italian-American community for his anti-fascist writing and his strong, strongly worded attacks against Mussolini. America began trying to deport him because he was just becoming a problem, and Mussolini started getting worried about his writing. He was starting to think that he was going to change Italian-American opinion on him and that he was going to hurt his reputation with the U.S. banks. Because let's be real here, it doesn't matter what country you're leading, you want the United States to be on your side. The United States spends more on their military than the next, like, eight below it, and that makes them a very powerful country, especially during the times of, like, World War One, World War Two. So Mussolini did not want the United States as a straight-up enemy yet. Yet. 
World War One. So he does eventually declare war on the United States. But right now in World War One, he wants to be friendly with the United States because he has money tied up here. The Italian ambassador started leaning on the American government to ban his newspaper. So America charged Tresca with publishing obscenities, pretty much saying like, you're distributing to the public something that is not fit for the public to see. Pretty much like the reason that you can't go on live TV and say the F word. You can't, you can't go on NBC and say the F word. The same kind of thing because the FCC would come after you. That's what they were charging him with. When he was sentenced and he was subject to deportation, the American public went wild. They were like, absolutely not. We live in America. What happened to freedom of speech? You are not allowed to do this. What happened to freedom of information? You are not about to deport this man because of a country that has shown open hostility towards us. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So they start picketing. Like people took to the streets for Tresca. The uproar actually got so loud that the president, Calvin Coolidge, was kind of forced to commute his sentence and he didn't end up getting deported because of the American public. When Coolidge overturned his sentence, the fascists got pissed. Like, they were happy when America said that they were going to deport him because they're like, yes, let us get our hands on him. Like, we're going to kill him. And when Coolidge turned around, he was like, all right, all right, fine, fine, fine. We'll keep him. Now the fascists are pissed because they want to stifle him. They don't want this man spreading his ideas around the rest of the community. It's not a good thing for them. So now they're mad. So now this is the beginning of the end. This is where things start to go really bad between the fascists, which Italy is a fascist country at the time, and America. The fascists decide that they're going to assassinate Coolidge for reversal of his decision to deport this man. But their plans were thwarted when bombs that they had placed were discovered. So like, they thought that they were sneaky and Coolidge's men were like, are you kidding me? Like, don't, don't play with me. They found the bombs and he didn't die. I don't even know if it was a real, like, threat. Like, it was really easy for them to find these bombs. It was super simple. Like, that's the best you can do? Okay, we got you, bro. Now, the anti-fascists and the people that had picketed to get Tresca to stay in the United States, when they find out that there's a threat against Coolidge's life just because he overturned the deportation of Tresca, they start going crazy again. They start picketing, they start having public gatherings, and Tresca is credited as stopping the spread of Mussolini's ideology to Italian Americans, despite the public platform being taken away because they took away his publication. So despite his publication being taken away, Tresca still was changing the entire opinion of all of the Italian American people. And this is all because as these people are gathering and they're picketing and they're having riots and everything, Tresca's showing up and he's talking at these events. It does matter. Because it, it seems like it shouldn't matter. You know, it's like, well, what do you care what citizens that used to be Italians, but are no longer, they're in America, why do you care what their opinion is? It matters. It does matter. It matters because, first of all, they could go back to Italy at any time. Most of them aren't permanent residents of America. Second of all, if everybody from that country in this country hates that country, First of all, more people are going to start to leave that country because they have family that are still in that country. And second of all, it matters because American government is going to look 
at the people from that country. So if they're saying, oh, okay, we have X amount of Italian Americans here and they hate the government from Italy, they're going to hate the government from Italy. And that's what Mussolini doesn't want. So it matters what the Italian American people think of the Italian government. Tresca went to a patriotic banquet, a party that was held by the worst savings bond committee of Americans of Italian extraction. And he made a speech there in front of hundreds of notable people. He announced that Generoso Pope was a fascist and that his aide, Frank Garofolo, was a gangster. I had already mentioned Frank Garofolo in this episode. So now here he comes up again where Tresca's saying like, Garofolo is a gangster. Don't listen to him. He's not somebody you should be respecting. And this is the first time that Garofolo had ever been publicly called out. Garofolo is involved in the mafia. But at this time, the American government is completely denying the fact that the mafia exists. They're still saying like, what mafia? It doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Organized crime, that's not a thing. So Garofolo being called out as a gangster, that's pretty big. That's bad. That's bad news for Garofolo. During this little rant that Tresca's on, he outs Garofolo as having had an affair with an ADA, Dolores Facanti. Generoso Pope was the head of the Italian newspaper Il Martello. He also didn't stop at Italian politics. He starts getting people on board with Soviet communism and Stalinism. He starts getting involved with everything on that side of the world. He starts outing conspiracies like this woman, Juliet Stewart she had attempted to defect from the Communist Party USA, and Tresca comes out and publicly accuses the Soviets of kidnapping her. So she goes missing, and he comes out and he's like, hey, where is this girl? She was just talking shit about you guys. Where is she? It's like a Jeffrey Epstein kind of thing. Like, the public knows that they did it, but they can't admit that they did it. Long story short, Tresca becomes a real headache for any politician that's trying to spread hateful ideology through the country that they're from and through America. On January 11th, 1943, Tresca was shot in the back of the head by a man that had run up on him as he exited his office on Fifth Avenue. The shooter was described as a short, squat gunman in a brown coat. The shooter that they're describing is Carmine Galante. Genovese had a conversation with Mussolini that went something like this. Mussolini was like, man, that Tresca dude is really getting on my nerves. I swear, I can't spread any of my propaganda and false ideology all over the United States while he's there. I don't know what to do. This dude is swerving all of my attempts. So Genovese is like, hey, hey, listen, dude, chill, just chill. I've got some shooters in America. Let me make a call. Chill out. I got this. So Genovese calls up Galante and he's like, hey, Daddy Warbucks Mussolini needs a favor and I am going to make that happen. So I'm going to need you to kill that dude Tresca. He's a reporter and he's hurting my little boyfriend's feelings. So make it go away. So now this is where I'm at a toss up. I can't decide if Galante sucks for this or not. We all know that in the mafia, if you get a call to kill your best friend, your brother, it doesn't matter who it is, you don't have a choice. You can fight for that person's life, but if it's ultimately decided that that person has to die, you have to do it. You either do it or you die. So did he do this out of obligation? Did he do this to preserve his own life in a matter of this man pissed off Genovese and I would rather he die than I 
I die. Did he do it that way? Or was he like, oh yeah, let's go stifle liberals. Like let's, let's go make sure that the fascist party can soldier on. I don't know. And at the end of the day, Genovese, even if he's in Italy, he's a mafia don. He's very powerful. He has a whole lot of power. He is somebody that anybody is going to jump at the chance to impress this dude and do work for him. So yes, Galante did kill Tresca, but I can't decide if he's wrong for it or not. I can't. Let me know what you think because I can't make my mind up. So Galante is pretty high up in the Bonanno family. He's only 34 years old and he's Joe Bonanno's protege. He's heading the Castella Marisi gang or La Marisi as they're known on the street. He's providing driving and guarding services for Bonanno himself. That's a serious job. That's someone that the high, high, high ups because Bonanno is the boss of the family. So him being in that position at only 34 years old, it's a big deal. So I'm sure that at this point, his skills for killing are like well honed and they're also well known. Everybody knows about it. Everybody knows who Carmine Galante is. It makes sense that he would be the one to get the call from Genovese. As much as I hate the fact that an American journalist was killed on behalf of Mussolini, I don't think I can put the blame on Carmine for this. I don't think I can. I just hate Genovese so much more for it. Now, Carmine slips up here. He stupidly admits that he killed Tresca to his prison bunkmate, Emilio Funicello, who immediately presents this to the DA in hopes of getting some time off his sentence. They also know that he did it because on the day that it happened, January 11th, 1943, Galante had gone to report to his parole office. Now, when he left the parole office, an officer decided to follow him. An officer trailed him until he got into a Ford sedan license plate number LC9272. And he gets in this car and he drives off. One hour later, that exact car was used in the murder of Tresca. This happened within an hour of Galante leaving the parole office in that car. So it, he didn't even cover his tracks very well. Like he's really not the brightest freaking crayon in the box. He's tough, but he's not smart. They're on foot. So they don't follow him after he gets in the car, even though they were trying to surveil him because they were convinced that he was breaking the provisions of his his parole. So they want to follow him, but they can't. They wrote down the license plate of the car and that was that. They, they, they don't have a way to follow him. If they had gotten in the car, they would have witnessed the murder of Cheska. And there wouldn't have been any question as to whether he did it or not. They would have watched him do it. But at this time, the war is going on and they're grounded because they have a patrol rationing restriction. So they can't just take their car anywhere that they want to go. So they're grounded and, you know, he got in a vehicle and they couldn't follow him. There's no way he knew that. He had no idea. I mean, I'm sure he knew that he didn't have a tail, but there's no way he could have known that they weren't able to follow him. There's no way. One of the officers that followed him was Officer Burson. He's extremely loud and he's adamant that Galante is the one that killed Tresca. He knows it. He literally just watched him get in that car and he is doing everything in his power to pin this crime on him. He was fired from his job after a letter was sent to HQ from another parole officer in the building, and the other parole officer had killed himself a few days later, noting that he had been forced to do so by Burson 
in his suicide note. So this officer that literally watched it happen, he loses all credibility and he's fired because this dude decided to off himself and write in his suicide letter that it was because of him. So something completely different that had nothing to do with the crime got him fired and that's how he got away with the crime. The car was later found abandoned two blocks from the scene of the murder. Now, this is actually their second attempt to kill Tresca. They had tried to mow him down with the car that they abandoned a few days earlier. They just hadn't been successful. Even though he straight up admitted to this crime, they never indicted him. Before the DA even got a chance to bring this to trial, the Court of Appeals told the DA's office not to even bother. Funicello was not a legitimate witness, and that was the only evidence they had that he confessed to Funicello. Let me give you guys a little nugget that I hope you will take with you forever. For the rest of your lives, take this little nugget that I'm about to give you. In prison, there is no such thing as a friend. Any fellow inmate, no matter how close you think that you are to them, they will flip on you to get time taken off of their own sentence, and they will do it at the drop of a hat. That could be your best friend in the whole world, and I promise you, their freedom means more to them than your friendship does. They are going to flip on you. They're in prison. They hate being in prison. You hate being in prison. Everybody hates being in prison, and they are going to do whatever they can to get out of prison. Cooperating with authorities usually brings prison sentences down, and if this guy was any sort of reliable witness, it would have brought him down. He confessed to it. But because he wasn't a legitimate witness, it didn't end up going anywhere, and he didn't get any time taken off of his sentence. But my point is, do not blab to prison bunkies. Do not make friends. Do not blab. Do not confess. Do not tell war stories. Do not brag. Shut your mouth if you're in jail. People around you will rat, period. End of advice. Take that with you. If you ever go to jail, shut your mouth. There's never been a question of whether it was Galante or not. Everybody knows that it was Galante that killed Cheska. But the real question has always been, who hired him to do it? Newspapers at the time believed that it was Generoso Pope, who Cheska had spent his entire life insulting. And he had spent forever calling him a fascist, and just every mean thing you could say, he called Pope that name. Before he was killed, Pope's mistress had approached Tresca and been like, hey, stop fucking with this dude. This guy is not playing and he's pissed. Like, this is not a man you want to fuck with. Now that the war had started, these rants that he had been going on with for years and years, they're a lot more serious. In wartime, anything that's said is a lot more serious than something that's said when you're not at war. So that could be why he finally made the move to do something about it. Tresca obviously didn't listen, and at that political banquet, he came out and he really embarrassed Pope, so it's possible it was Pope that hired him to kill him. You know what? In my Frank Costello video, I was really upset that Tresca had been killed. I was really sad. I was absolutely appalled that Genovese had done it on behalf of Mussolini, and let me tell you something, if that is why he died, I still feel the same. But the more and more that I dig into Tresca, the less and less bad that I feel that he was killed. Like, I don't ever want to see anybody get murdered, obviously. But they literally can't decide between, like, ten people who they think killed him. Like, if you have ten legitimate people that could kill you, maybe you're doing something wrong. And he was warned. 
Somebody literally came to this man and said, hey, this guy is not playing anymore. Stop your shit or you're going to get killed. And then he went to this political banquet and he started talking shit. He made enemies of extremely, extremely dangerous dudes. And all of these guys that he knows he's making an enemy of have a reputation for killing everybody that goes up against them. I also found out that Tresca was an FBI informant and he had just met up with a case agent that day. This is one of those situations where if you're watching Boardwalk Empire and this dude is around, you're rooting for him to catch a bullet. Like, screw this dude, you know? As I said, I don't ever want to see anybody get killed. However, first of all, rat. That's a problem for me. As soon as you become a rat, I have a problem with that. I've discussed in great detail how I feel about people who turn government witness. I won't go further into it now. He's an FBI informant. That's a problem. That's a problem for me. And that automatically makes him a non-sympathetic character. He went up against people that he knew could kill him. Like, what did you expect, dude? You got killed. What did you think was gonna happen? Like, you can't feel bad for somebody that literally acts to die. It's... I don't know, man. I just... It pisses me off. All right. Anyway, Ernest the Hawk Rapolo, who I discussed a lot in the Costello video, he testified a lot, obviously. And he testified that Gus Frasca and George Smurra had told him that they were the other two people in the car that day, in the day that Tresco was killed. He testified that these two men had been part of the team that killed him and that they had been well compensated for the job. But years later, he walks that claim back. He says... No, they never actually said anything to me. The only thing he knows is that there was a rumor that Genovese was the one that killed Tresca and that Galante was the one that carried it out. So now he went from, oh, these two men personally looked me in the eye and told me that they did this to years later, like, oh, no, 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 no. I just heard a rumor. I don't know what you, I never said that. Okay. I just heard a rumor. That's all I know. So completely changes the tune of what he said and just can't be relied upon. It's claimed, claimed, this is not saying that this is true. It is claimed that Luciano, while he was serving his 30 to 50 year sentence in prison for the compulsory prostitution, that he was offered a deal to help America win World War II, and that he told Thomas Dewey who killed Tresca. The claim says that Luciano offered to give the identities of everybody involved in that crime. According to this claim, he said that he would testify, he would do all that, if he would be granted parole immediately, so out of prison immediately, and be allowed to stay in the United States. In this claim, it said that Thomas Dewey rejected this offer, which is why it never came to fruition. Now, I've had people comment on my video saying that Luciano was a rat, that he testified, that he cooperated with the government. This is a claim. There is no proof that this happened. First of all, the FBI loves to make things up. You have no idea if that really happened. If you've ever watched a TV show, you know that the FBI makes up things. That They're not a reliable source. Don't put any stock into what they say. Also, it's convenient that Thomas Dewey rejected the offer. Meanwhile, like, if Luciano could place Galante there, and they could put Galante in jail forever. Don't you think that's something that Thomas Dewey would be interested in hearing about? It doesn't really make any sense that Dewey was like, eh, no thanks. And then meanwhile, they never actually got somebody, anybody, for the killing of this very public figure. It doesn't make sense. So everybody that says like, oh yeah, well, Luciano testified, or Luciano was a rat, he was gonna testify, but blah, blah, blah. no, don't, don't, you know nothing. 
even if he did tell them that. Have you ever seen Sons of Anarchy? Where, like, they say that they're going to testify and then they end up killing the prosecutor? You have no idea of something like that. Like, a claim is not something that's substantiated. So don't put any merit into what the FBI said. Don't listen to claims that say that somebody was a rat. That's not fair to completely tarnish somebody's identity and legacy, especially somebody that helped create the mafia. And I know, I know I'm a hypocrite because I do that with Genovese. I fully believe that Genovese is a rat. That's never been proven. And I say very clearly, it's never been proven. Nobody's ever even so much as claimed it. I claim it because I believe it. You can believe that it may have happened, but don't go around like, oh yeah, he was a rat. Like, I I say, when I talk about Genovese, I say, like, I believe he was a rat. I don't say, like, oh, he was a rat, and, and act like that's substantiated information. So to the person that commented on my video and said, oh, Luciano's a rat. He cooperated with the government. Bleh, bleh, bleh. Like, no, <laughs> it's not the same thing. Don't do that. Carmine got married to Elena. She's also referred to on multiple occasions as Helen. I'm not sure why. Maybe that's a middle name. Ninea Maruli on February 10th, 1945. She was 28 years old and he was 35 years old. Together, they had three children, James Galante, Camille Galante, and Angela Galante. Elena lived at 247 South 3rd Street in Brooklyn, and Carmine lived at 592 Shepherd Avenue in Brooklyn. Carmine's occupation listed on his marriage certificate is a longshoreman, so he's still working for the union at this time. And Elena's occupation is listed as radio. I'm assuming that means that she probably works at a radio station, filing that kind of stuff, probably like sorting records. I don't know if you ever saw that 70s show, but like what Donna does at the radio station, I imagine that being what she did. Because at that time, women didn't really, you know, have meaningful jobs. You don't really hear very much about women at that time being on the radio, spreading their opinion, blah, blah, blah. So I'm thinking she was like a radio sorter, secretary kind of thing. She also worked at some point at Cambridge Grocery Store. So she always had work. She always made sure to stay employed. While he and Elena did have a wonderful relationship, Carmine also has a whole second life at this time. And Elena has no idea. Carmine has a whole ass second wife. I'm not talking girlfriend. I'm not talking Gumar. Carmine has a second wife. He had a whole ass home that he built with this woman. In 1949, he officially moves in with her. Her name is Antoinette Aquavella Galante. So they officially move in in 1949 to 2330 Linwood Avenue in Whitesville, New Jersey. And they lived together until March of 1958. And even though they weren't legally married, obviously because Carmine already has a legal marriage to Elena, he can't be married to her. They lived together for so long that legally it was a common law marriage. Together, they had had two children. So they had two daughters, Mary Lou and Nina Galante. So he has three children with his wife wife, and then he has two children with his second wife. This man's wild. Like, he doesn't do anything half-ass. Aquavia was officially married to a friend of Galante's, Stephen Schwartz, pretty much for appearances. So she was physically actually legally married to 
Stephen Schwartz. She didn't have any kind of relationship with him, like that wasn't a thing, but this is back in the time where having two children out of wedlock is a really, really, really bad look. I'm talking scarlet letter type shit. You cannot have two kids out of wedlock. So Galante set it up so that she would be married to his friend and he wouldn't have to worry about the person because this is a really good friend of his. This guy knows better than to try to fuck with him. And Galante can physically go live with him. They can raise their family together. But at the same time, he would remain legally married to Elena. He and Elena slash Helen, whatever, they had a pretty happy marriage, but eventually they must have had like a falling out or something. And then they eventually started to hate each other. They would have gotten a divorce, but this is back in the day. And Carmine is a devout Catholic and it is 100% against the church to get a divorce. And divorce isn't as popular back then as it is now. So they hate each other to the point that they literally cannot live together. So Carmine goes and he leaves and he lives with the second wife, builds a whole ass home, but legally he has to stay married to Elena because he's a devout Catholic. He can go around and kill a lot of people. He can go around and have a second wife, have children out of wedlock. He can do all that, but divorce, that is the hard line he will not cross. Sources would regularly claim that he would shoot you dead in church during high mass. So his devotion to religion is kind of questionable. I don't really know what the real story is with being married. Maybe that's one of those like you can't testify against your husband kind of things. I don't really know. He was arrested on September 4th, 1947 at 5 Berkeley Place in New York City. The arrest was made after police witnessed Galante putting a dismantled still into a Cadillac on one occasion and putting copper sheeting, tubing, and all the other parts that are like necessary to build a still into a truck on another occasion. So like, obviously he's putting together a still, like they're, they're watching him slowly piece it together. I'm not really sure why, honestly, because prohibition is from 1920 to 1931. So why is this man building a still in 1947? I have no idea, but he is. So maybe, I, I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know. This time when he's arrested, he says that he's working for his brother who owns a grocery store in the neighborhood. He said that he was in the area looking for olive oil. Like just ignore the copper piping and stuff. That's not real. I'm just looking for olive oil. He said that he only knew one of the people that he was arrested with pretty much he's like hey i'm hanging out with this one guy and this one guy met up with all those other guys and i don't know those other guys there was about four to five co-conspirators and this is definitely to avoid getting that consorting with known criminals charge so he says he doesn't know them but obviously he knows them so he's charged as a co-conspirator and he's also charged for possession of the equipment in the manufacture of alcohol which again, I don't understand. I don't know why he's manufacturing alcohol in 1947, but yes. With his history with stills, the Appalachian meeting was said to have multiple purposes. It happens like many years later, and I'll tell the full story of that, but the underlying reason that police believe that this meeting was taking place was that Garofolo was interested in operating the Canada Dry Bottling Company. A man named Barbara owned the company, and Galante was knowledgeable about making and operating alcohol stills. And together, they could order a copious amount of sugar, say they're being used to make ginger ale and soft drinks, 
and divert that sugar to make alcohol instead. He was arrested on December 15th, 1950 for running a craps game at 235 West 18th Street in New York City. 51 people were at that game. Do you know what a big game 51 people is? Like, that's a that's a big game. Because these games aren't, like, legal. They're not at, like, a bar. They're in some, like, underground basement somewhere. So nabbing 51 people, that's a lot of people for an underground illegal game. That's crazy. That was a, probably a freaking good time. During this time, he's also under investigation for his connection with the murder of Dominic Edone. That might be wrong. I might be pronouncing that wrong. A fellow mobster who was killed on the street after being called at home. Nobody knows why he died, but the police were convinced that Galante did it. He was never indicted for that one, but they know that he did it. So, like, pretty much Galante called this man and was like, Hey, brother, like, come chill. And, like, the guy left to go meet Galante, and then he died. And he's like, ah, I didn't kill him. No, not me. Like, yes, you did. In 1953, Galante headed to Canada to manage the Bonanno family's drug import-export business from Canada. The drug business that he creates here is going to come to be known as the French Connection. He worked with the Catroni family to import huge amounts of heroin from France into Canada by boat, where the imported goods were like less regulated, they were less monitored, any imported goods, they, they just weren't as heavily scrutinized. From Canada, he would cut the heroin and he would get it ready to be sold and then he would ship it to the United States to be distributed. He was selling upwards of 50 kilos per month to America from Cuba and Montreal. And he would send it to New York, Chicago, Dallas. It was a big operation. Now, the French Connection gets all set up and he is making massive amounts of money. Massive amounts of money. But... Even though he's making that amount of money, it is not enough, and he starts making huge profits from gambling. The government estimates that during the time that the French Connection was up and running, he brought in about $50 million a year in gambling income. He also opened a restaurant called Bonfire Restaurant at 546 Delane Boulevard in Montreal. This is probably a way that he's trying to wash some of the money so that he could legitimize some of the billions of dollars that he's bringing in. And for all the things that you can say about Galante, he is a hard worker. He is mafia through and through. He worked hard to set up Montreal as a main hub for distribution of heroin from Cuba, Sicily, Marseille, and all of it's going into America. He had all of these connections. He put it all together. He literally created a pipeline on his own. It paid off financially because he was walking away with 10% of all the rackets that were going on in the city of Montreal. The position in Canada didn't really last long. In April of 1956, the Canadian government deported him back to the U.S. after he ordered multiple murders of carriers for stupid things. So, like, a carrier would be, like, slow with the delivery. Other things that did not warrant murder, and he would kill them. And Canada was like, yeah, no, we're not playing that game. Get oot. Get out now. Like, they, they, they were not playing. They wanted him out, and he was out fast. They tried to charge him with the murders, but they failed. And when they failed, they were just like, all right, get the fuck out of my country. Never allowed back in Canada again. 
It's actually really interesting because if you look at the hundreds and hundreds of pages of FBI documents written about Galante, not once will you see him referred to as a member of the mafia. A member of a gang? Yes. A hoodlum? Yes. But not one time does it say that he's in the mafia. Not one time is the mafia even acknowledged. And that's because at this point, J. Edgar Hoover is running the CIA and he is adamantly refusing to acknowledge the existence of the mafia, the existence of any kind of organized crime, and this is just a foreign concept that he absolutely refuses to acknowledge whatsoever. Galante also owned a company called Latimer Shipping Company, and it's an import-export company that Galante used as a cover to ship drugs back and forth to America and Canada and France and Sicily. So he sets up this import-export company and figures out a way to smuggle the drugs back and forth. Galante was arrested in New York in 1956 for a speeding violation. He was arrested for a speeding violation. At the time, he was listed as working at the Rosina Costume Company at 1515 70th Street in Brooklyn, and he was also listed as a partner in the Bonfire Restaurant at 5460 DeCarrie Boulevard in Montreal with two other partners. It's not really a surprise that he was arrested for speeding. His license had been suspended on June 20th, 1956 for having 11 traffic summonses between May 1952 and December 1955. His license was currently suspended, which is why he was arrested for the speeding violation, not just like given a ticket, because if you get pulled over while your license is suspended for doing anything, like literally you could forget to put your blinker on, you get pulled over, you immediately get arrested because you're operating a vehicle with a suspended driver's license. He was charged with speeding, driving as an unlicensed operator, and unauthorized use of another person's license. So pretty much he produced a fake ID when the cop pulled him over. He produced the license of Joseph Di Palermo, and Di Palermo is Galante's BFF, so that's why he had his license. When he went to trial, he was represented by the former mayor of the town, and he was only given 30 days in jail and a $150 fine. See, I say only, but I have been involved in many, many arrests that are from driving with a suspended license and I've never once seen somebody get jail time for it. So as much as it's like, oh yeah, he only got 30 days. I have never seen somebody get a day in jail. I've seen people get arrested, bailed out, and then you have to pay some kind of fine at court. Like for you to do time in jail for driving with a suspended license, like that's a lot. It's a lot. After this arrest, he's placed under surveillance. He tried to bribe them to not arrest him. So like when these cops pulled him over, obviously he's like, yo, I'll give you a hundred grand. Like, do not arrest me, please. I will give you whatever you want. Do not arrest me. This little situation opens up like a whole can of worms because like, okay, so he offers these two cops money to not arrest him. They say, nah, screw you. They arrest him, and they also say, like, hey, he tried to bribe us. Trying to bribe an officer is a crime in and of itself. Now, when they denied this bribe, they say, no, we don't want that. This other cop comes through. Captain Gleesman comes through, and he tries to bribe the two cops to just, like, let him go and pretend it never happened, that he they never arrested him. He comes through, and he offers each of the cops $1,000 to just pretend that they never even saw Galante. Somehow a sergeant gets involved in this. So like these two cops that arrested him are like, you know, straight and narrow assholes, you know, like those, those cops, they're those cops. That's so it. Oh, I'm not going to be bribed. Like what a bitch, you know? <laughs> 
priorities might be wrong. I don't care. So these two guys are now getting accosted by Galante. They say no. They still arrest him. This captain comes up, offers them money. They say no. They have him arrested. Now the sergeant gets involved. He offers even more money. And these two cops are still assholes. And they report the sergeant as well. So now Captain Gleesman and Sergeant Policastro are both suspended over this. And the police chief, Fred Roos, is under subpoena to testify about this. But he turns out to be too ill to testify. Now, to be fair, all parties involved in this are all exonerated. But it's funny to think about, like, the huge chain of events that Galante is just setting off all the time. Like, he sets off this situation where all of the prisoners in New York are having their time reassessed. He sets off this chain of events that, like, captains and sergeants are getting suspended, and, you know, like, he's just, he's a whole mess for everybody around him. At the end of the day, all of the blame kind of fell on Ernest Mattarelli, who is the police chief at the time, and they come after Mattarelli because, like, they're reporting this in the newspaper. This whole saga is going on and the public can see. So they can't just, like, exonerate these two guys. Like, somebody obviously offered to bribe these guys. So it all falls on the police chief, Ernest Martinelli. And he is the police commissioner for Western New York. So this is a big guy. And he is also later exonerated. And I think that they just waited for the heat to die down in the newspapers and then exonerated him. They just needed a scapegoat to tell the public like, oh yeah, we're, we're handling this. We're not just going to let this criminal try to buy his way out of jail pretty much. And then they exonerated the police chief. Nobody ended up going to jail or losing their job or even being like formally reprimanded. Everybody walked away just fine. So now that whole situation, it sparks an investigation into him. The investigation is all centered around his involvement with Abco Vending Company. Abco Vending Company is a vending company in West New York, New Jersey, and it's a company that Galante owns. And at this company, this is where he establishes the relationship with the cops that, you know, people are going and trying to bribe other cops. This is where the relationships are established. And through this company, it's also a gambling syndicate. It's a front for a gambling syndicate. And it's literally going from America to Montreal. So it's everywhere. And that's what the investigation is centered around. I know I've talked about this topic on a few different occasions on this channel. So if you watch all my videos, I'm sorry that sometimes I continue to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. But I just went through and I searched pretty hard and I could not find the video that I delved really deep into this. So I think I'm just going to go back through the entire thing because I looked hard, but I can't find it. I know I did it, but I can't find it. So I'm just going to go back through it. On November 14th, 1957, the Appalachian meeting was called. Leading up to the Appalachian meeting, everything that happened there, I've gone over it so many times. So I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version. Loki Luciano created the American Mafia, and that's the mafia that we know today. He created five families. He created the structure of the family, the ability to be made so on and so forth. It was Maranzano's idea, but Lucky Luciano actually instated it and, you know, made it a thing. He was arrested. He was sentenced to 30 to 50 years for compulsory prostitution, and he helps the United States win World War II. After he helps the United States win World War II, his sentence is commuted. He's let out of jail, but he's deported. He's not allowed to be in America whatsoever. At this time, Genovese is his underboss. Genovese had to flee America because he's running away from a murder charge. He ends up in Italy, and in Italy, he puts the 
full power of his financial empire, which is about $81 million in today's money, behind Mussolini until the day he's voted out of office. So, like, literally, from point A to point B to point C, he is behind Mussolini until Mussolini is no longer a politician. Because Luciano and Genovese were both from Italy and both unable to run the family... Frank Costello steps up and he takes over as boss of the family. Genovese is caught in Italy after running an illegal food running scheme. And the scheme is that like they bring food to American soldiers, but they're also robbing the army blinds. So after he gets caught in Italy, he's extradited back to America to stand trial for this murder that he's running away from. And it's a murder of a mafioso that he had killed because... This mafioso expected payment because he was the middleman for this wealthy gambler. So this guy had sent this wealthy gambler to Genovese. Genovese robbed him blind of like 150 grand. And this guy wanted payment. And instead of paying him, they just killed him. So Genovese is back in America and he kills the witnesses and he walks off scot-free. So now Genovese walks off scot-free. He gets a not guilty verdict and he's able to stay in America. He's back and now he wants control of the family, but Costello had held the position for the entire time that he was gone and he wasn't handing leadership back over to him. I say handing it back over. Genovese had never actually had the power of the boss of the family because he was gone when Luciano went to jail. So it's not handing power back over, but in essence, he should have had that position because he was the underboss when Luciano got deported. So he wants the position as the boss of the family. Genovese teamed up with Carlo Gambino so that both of them could gain control of their respective families. Genovese convinced Gambino that he would help him get control of his family, the Gambino family, if Gambino backed Genovese in his bid to take control of his family. Genovese made a move and he had Vincent Gigante kill Frank Costello. Gigante is a terrible shot and he barely clipped his head, but Costello got scared and he stepped down and he gave control of the family to Genovese. Genovese still had to hold up his end of the deal though, so a few months later, a bunch of dudes run up on Albert Anastasia, the leader of his family, and they take him out in a barber shop where he was sitting and having a haircut. In order to confirm Gambino as the new boss of the family, Genovese called the Appalachian meeting to order. He ordered every mafioso in any form of power to attend this Appalachian meeting. A lot of the bosses protested this. They did not want to come because they had recently had a meeting. It was pretty recent that they had just had a gathering, so doing that so close together, it's dangerous. It's a bad move, they know it, but they get called to do it, they have to do it, so they all show up. The meeting was held at the home of Joseph Joe the Barber Barbera at 625 McFall Road in Appalachia, New York. Barbera is the one that owns the Canada Bottling Company, and when I said before that there was like an underlying issue of the Appalachian meeting of the Canada Dry Bottling Company, that's Barbera. Do you want to know an interesting little tidbit about this? So I want to tell you, so you're going to hear it. The interesting thing is that, so I've said on this channel so many times that the mafia created America. The mafia created America. They did. They created New York. They created Las Vegas. They created Chicago. They created America. So an interesting fact is that Joe the Barber, obviously he's holding mafia summits at his house. Obviously, he's a member of the Mafia. Joe the Barber is also the person that created Canada Dry Bottling. So, like, Canada Dry, the ginger ale-type drink that is now owned by Pepsi and you can find on any shelf of any supermarket, anything, that was created by the Mafia. Mafia dudes created the fucking world, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. 
So according to reports, cops got really suspicious when they started seeing all these nice caddies driving up. And this is like a small town and all of a sudden like hundreds of thousands of freaking people are just like descending and all these expensive cars and, you know, they get their little like flares go up. They're like, what the hell is going on here? Barbera had recently told them that he didn't want to do this. He didn't want to hold this summit because he had recently been having trouble controlling the local police. But Genovese insists and he continues planning it. And if you watch my friend Costello video, you know that I'm completely convinced that Genovese was a rat. I fully believe that Genovese was a rat. I fully believe that Genovese set this meeting up in order to give police a huge score and allow them to arrest the most powerful mafia figures in America. I fully believe that. You cannot convince me otherwise. Something that isn't so widely reported, though, is that the FBN, which is the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, had actually bugged some lines, and they discovered that the Appalachian meeting was about to happen through these bugged lines. If the FBN had knowledge of this meeting, I promise you the FBI did as well. There's no way this all went down because some cops got suspicious of some caddies. I never believed that from day one. So I just found out that they had actually found out that this meeting was taking place through the wiretaps. So it makes a lot more sense than like, oh, there's some caddies. Let's figure this out. Like, I never thought that that was the case, but it's because it was bugged. The police raided this meeting and over 60 mafiosi were arrested and indicted. Considering there was over 100 powerful mafiosi in attendance, that really isn't that bad. 40 of them were able to get away. Galante was one of those 40. He was later arrested for being there, but he didn't get caught there. He did get away, which go Galante. Police speculated that he went to Miami, Havana, Cuba, or to Italy to hide out after everybody else had been arrested in the Appalachian setup. So he just disappeared. Galante was nowhere to be found. So now that all these bosses are arrested, they're charged and 20, 20 of them are charged with conspiring to obstruct justice by lying about the nature of this underworld meeting. So pretty much saying like, oh, you lied to me. You lied. So I'm going to arrest you. Like, I hate, hate cops. These 20 guys are found guilty in January of 1959. They are each fined $10,000 and they're each given prison sentences of three to five years. Every single one of them had their conviction overturned on appeal, but they were all found guilty when they were initially sentenced. One thing that this meeting did do, though, was that it did reconfirm the presence of a global criminal conspiracy to the American public because the mafia in the public's eye back then was like what we think of now as like the cabal. Like it was never acknowledged and everybody knew that it was a thing, but the government absolutely refused to acknowledge it as a thing. So when the Appalachian meeting happened and all these media outlets are like, oh my God, all of these guys are arrested. It's like, oh shit, there really is organized crime in America. Like these men really did band together and make a business out of crime. That's crazy. Nothing like that had been done before. I mean, I'm sure it had been done before, but it had never been legally established. It was like literally just like a scary bedtime story, like complete myth. If you watch my Carlos Marcelo video, you know that the reason that he did this was to try to deter 
law enforcement from nailing these guys because they had lewd photos of J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI at the time. And J. Edgar Hoover continued to come out and say, like, no, there's no such thing as a mafia. There's no such thing as organized crime. It's a bedtime story. Don't worry about it. He continued to do that because the mafia had, like, these lewd photos from a time that he had had a hotel room. And they got these photos and they made him pretty much continue to deny the existence of a mafia. Right before the Appalachian meeting was called, Joseph Bonanno had gone to Palermo. Bonanno, along with his consigliere, Galante, Frank Garofolo, Giovanni Bonventre, and a few other representatives from Detroit, Buffalo, Montreal, they all went together. They went for the Grand Hotel Air de Palmes Mafia meeting. This meeting, which is now also known as the 1957 Palermo Mafia Summit, was to discuss international illegal heroin trade and pretty much solidify the French connection. The Americans asked the Sicilians to take over the import and distribution of heroin in the United States, and the Sicilians jumped all over it. They were like, hell yes, yes, I will do that for you. The U.S. market for heroin was booming, booming. There was millions and millions and millions of dollars to be made, and the Sicilian mafiosi were no freaking joke. These boys were born and bred for mafia activities. I'm talking like, you know those videos, like those really sad videos you see of like these little 10 year old kids on the back of trucks with like these big machine guns and they're being trained to be in the military from like a young, young age. Yeah, that's these guys. They're trained. These zips, these Italian mafia guys, they're born and bred to be in the mafia. They are serious. They know all the rules. They know how to follow them. They do not play. The American mafia has always had a record of like importing Sicilian mafiosi to be foot soldiers in the organization, especially once the American landscape started to change and everybody started to flip. They started bringing over the Sicilians because Sicilians don't flip. That that was a huge problem is that Americans, even if they get them at a young age, let's say, you know, 14, 15 years old, look at Henry Hill. You know, you look at Goodfellas. They got him at 14 years old. He still flipped. You know, but these Italians, they're taught from a young, young age, omerta, 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 don't ever snitch. So they trust these Italians a lot more than any new recruit that they get from America. So they start bringing people over from Sicily. Now, obviously, they can't bring that many people over because Sicily needs a mafia. But the more that they can bring over, the better. Between all the people that attended the summit, Americans and Italians alike, only one person ever flipped. One. One person out of all those people. Tommaso Buscetta, a Sicilian mafioso who turned pentito, denied that there was ever a summit. Even though he acknowledges that Bonanno went to Sicily, and he acknowledges that he received a lot of visitors, he was always pretty adamant that there was never any mafia activity happening. I talked a lot about what led up to the pentini, or mafia turncoats, as Buscetta was, in my Frank Cali video. So if you're interested in that, go take a look at my Frank Cali video. It's one of my older videos, but but I go through why the group emerged in the wake of the Second Mafia War in Italy. Because the Corleonesi, they became a force. And it led to thousands of murders. Like, thousands of people were killed by the Corleonesi. Every member of the Mafia had lost someone substantial. They had lost substantial numbers of people. So, like, every person in the Mafia had lost their father, their brother, their cousin. Like, somebody really close to them. And most of them had lost, like, six people. Like, everybody lost people because of the large amount of people that were killed from the Corleonesis. 
eventually after the Corleonisi just would not stop and they kept going and going and going and going, the Pantini, they band together to help the government end the war. When the Capo de Tutti Capi, Salvatore Reina, was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences, he just decided to have a few judges murdered. No big deal. This absolutely outraged the public and it began a period of time that the Italian public was fully against the mafia, which was a huge change because the public had always been behind the mafia. Like, the mafia was something that was revered in Italy. So the fact that the public turned against them was a pretty big blow to the mafia in Italy. So now the Italian public is outraged. They're holding picket signs. The judges that were killed, they had people walking around with signs that said, you did not kill them. Their ideas walk on our legs. And they're writing that about Salvatore Lima and Giovanni Falcone and Borsellino, all the anti-mafia judges that had worked together to have a hand in Rena's sentencing. People went crazy that those people died. Now, back in America... Now people are being arrested. So now the Mafia Summit in Italy ended because of the Appalachian meeting. The Appalachian meeting was called, so they ended the meeting that they were currently having in Italy, and they came back to America to participate in the Appalachian meeting. So now all the people that were at both, like Bonanno, Galante, all of them, everybody that was in Italy and then came back to America, they're arrested for the Appalachian meeting. And then they're not only charged with the Appalachian meeting, but they're also charged with everything that went on in Italy. They're charged with criminal conspiracy and narcotics trafficking and currency rackets. And they're saying it all started at this summit in Italy, and they're just taking down everybody. Everybody, Joseph Bonanno, John Bonventre, Santo Sorge, Stefano and Gaspar Magadino, John Prezzola, Raphael Quasarano, Frank Coppola, Joe Adonis, Carmine Galante, everybody is getting arrested for this. Now, Joe Adonis and Lucky Luciano, they had already been permanent residents in Italy because they both were deported from America. Joe Adonis had gone willingly and Luciano, not so much. But a few of these guys didn't even live in Italy. <laughs> like, the guys that are being charged, they're being charged in Italy. So, like, Italy is filing charges against, like, Joe Bonanno. Joe Bonanno is currently in America being charged for the Appalachian meeting, but in Italy, they're putting charges out against him as well. Charges over there are eventually dropped due to lack of evidence, but I think that they just officially put the charges out against them because the public was so upset. Galante rounded up a shit ton of guys from Castellamare del Golfo, and he brought them home with him from the Palermo meeting. And he pretty much brings them and incorporates them into his family. He brings them to be bodyguards. He brings them to carry out hits. He brings them to distribute the drugs. He pretty much brings an entire gang of Sicilian mafia members to the States to do the work that he doesn't want to do. So as more and more and more of them came with him, they got their own term. They started being called Zips. On January 10th, 1958, the New York Times put out an article that included testimony from John T. Cusack, the district supervisor of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or the FBN. Cusack states in the article that Galante was the one that killed Tresca, and now he's waging a campaign to control narcotics, gambling, and all 
criminal rackets in Brooklyn. According to the article, Frank Garofolo was the one that ordered the killing of Tresca, and Galante was the one that carried it out. Garofolo was the underboss of the Bonanno family at the time, and Tresca had pissed him off at that banquet. We really don't know who ordered Galante to kill Tresca. We really will never know for sure. It could have been Genovese, it could have been Garofolo, it could have been a Mexican communist and OGPU Triggerman, who was an enemy of Tresca's as well. Uh, Tresca had outed him as having killed his wife and a man named Leon Trotsky. It could have been another publisher, Generoso Pope. He was the second man that Tresca had insulted at the banquet. Honestly, at this point, I don't think it even matters who ordered it. Somebody ordered it. The man died. Galante was the one that carried it out. I believe it was Vito Genovese. I fully believe that it was Genovese on behalf of Moose. But if you die and they can't even decide who killed you because you have so many enemies, maybe you had it coming. Just a personal opinion. Maybe it was meant to be. I don't know. I don't know. What do I know? Cusack did everything he could to get the word out there about Galante. So he's going public. He can't indict him on anything. Like there's nothing he can indict him on. Galante is very careful to not get caught. So there's nothing he can do as far as like putting him in jail. So he decides he's going to go after him in the public and he's going to turn the American public against him. And that is one of the most dangerous things you can do because that's the difference between people rioting and picketing on your behalf or or rioting and picketing because you're not in jail. That's a big difference. And if you think that the American public rioting, picketing, having problems with things, if you don't think that that means something, that that matters, you're crazy. Because when the public unites about something, especially in the U.S., it matters. Cusack went on and did another article that same day with the Herald Tribune. And in that article, he says that Frank Garofolo is a personal friend of Joe Perfacci, and everybody knows that Joe Perfacci is in the mafia by this point. And he also says that Garofolo is the one that ordered the hit on Tresca and also states that he was involved in the murder of Willie Moretti and Abraham Davidian. Willie Moretti was Frank Costello's cousin and underboss of the Genovese family. Genovese had him killed as a mercy killing because he had syphilis, which had deteriorated his mental state and he was like kind of going crazy. Genovese is the boss of the family at this time, and Costello is in and out of jail for not testifying at the key Foffer trials. Abraham Davidian was a California drug dealer who was killed in 1949 in his mother's home while he was sleeping on a couch. He was under constant, constant police guard at night, given the fact that he was currently testifying against the LA Mafia. But they decided that they only wanted to watch him at night. So, like, they have heavy guard on him. He can't go pee with out a guard at night, but during the day, they just leave him to his own devices. So what do you think happened? They came during the day. The shooter walked right in. Like the door wasn't even locked. It was just, it was just easy. David Ian was caught with about $92,000 in heroin after a high-speed car chase, and he decided to testify against his dealer, Joe Sika, to avoid a life sentence. So now the mafia is after him to make him not testify. So when they killed him, nobody testified against Joe Sika, and he got away. By the time the article actually came out, Galante was already in hiding, so it really didn't have an effect on him. What the article did serve to do, though, was it made Galante a a star. 
from that point on, he was regularly in newspapers. Like, I'm talking John Gotti-level celebrity. He had been brought up on drug conspiracy charges, and since he knew that they were coming, he went underground, and he just was hiding because he didn't want to do a really long prison sentence. And wouldn't you guess it, the way that he was eventually caught was that he was pulled over when he was driving. He was driving on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey. Cops were tailing him, so it's not like they just like randomly pulled him over. They were tailing him after an informant told them that he was staying at a house on Pelican Island in South Jersey Shore. And pretty much the informant was able to tell them everything, the kind of car he was driving, exactly where he was staying, everything. So cops were able to follow him and pull him over. Pretty amazingly, he was given bail. Usually when people go on the run and they're captured against their will, they don't turn themselves in, they usually don't get bail. The judge issued a $100,000 bail and off he went. He was indicted on additional narcotics charges on May 18th, 1960, and he turned himself in instead of continuing to run. I think he hit that like, I'm too old to run type shit. The first set of charges led to a mistrial because jurors just started mysteriously dropping out of the trial. The jury foreman just so happened to fall down a flight of stairs at an abandoned building in the middle of the night, so he couldn't continue. I wonder what happened there. And he wasn't the first, and he wasn't the last. So after so many jurors and all the alternates had started to drop out, the judge just scrapped the trial altogether. He was like, enough. Like, this is getting people hurt. I'm not doing this anymore. So that was ruled a mistrial. A mistrial just means that that particular trial is off. It doesn't mean that the charges are dropped. It doesn't mean that the person's not guilty. It just means that that trial with those jurors is shut down. They are more than welcome to open up a whole new trial. But people want a mistrial. You know, they'd rather get a mistrial than get a guilty verdict. He did get a sentence of 20 days in prison from the first trial for contempt of court because he had some like crazy outburst in court. One of his co-defendants, Anthony Mira, also got a 20-day sentence. So they pulled some crazy shit in trial because 20 days is a pretty long time for like just saying something like they must have been throwing chairs and losing their minds screaming at the judge like some crazy shit had to go down to get a 20 day sentence from just being at trial on the second set of charges he was found guilty on July 10th 1962 Galante was sentenced to 20 years in prison which at his age kind of indicated he was going to die in prison like that's a long sentence for an old man he spent his prison sentence at the Federal Detention Center in New York City, at Alcatraz, Lewisburg Penitentiary, Leavenworth, and Atlanta, and it all went off without a hitch. He didn't get in any trouble. He was a model prisoner, and he actually ended up getting out early, and he only did 12 years. He was released on parole in January of 1974, which 12 years when you have a 20-year sentence, that's a big cut in time, especially when the FBI claims that you've killed over 80 people and blah, 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 blah. You're famous, this and that. It's a huge accomplishment for him to have only done 12 years because it definitely was like headline making news that he was getting out of jail. This time around, the entire time he was in jail, the only thing that he could talk about was how when he got out, he was taking over the mafia. That was it. He was bound and determined he was going to get out of jail and he was going to become the Kapu D2T Kapi. He was going to be the boss of bosses and take over the entire American mafia. He vowed to be the Kapu D2T Kapi if it was the last thing he did. 
So when he gets out of prison, his first order of business upon being released from prison was to blow up the mausoleum doors of Frank Costello, his arch nemesis who had died the year before of natural causes. Now, by this time, Bonanno had already been ousted by the commission. They voted Philip Rusty Rastali in as the new boss of the Bonanno family. So I actually just had to look it up. By this time, the Banana Wars or the Bonanno Wars had already happened. So we're already past that. That was to kind of gauge who would be leader and Philip Rusty Rastali walked out on top of that. So Banana Wars happened already, which is like the only war that was ever in the Bonanno family. The Bonanno family had actually like prided themselves on never having a dispute or anything. So the Banana Wars, like that rocked them. But remember that the Banana Wars, it tore the family apart. So when Galante is getting out of jail, this is a fractured family that he's coming back to. When he gets out of jail, he has one singular focus. He has blinders on, like he has one goal. His goal is to gain control of his family. In 1976, when Rastali went back to jail, Galante took control of the family unofficially. This wasn't sanctioned by the commission. He just said, I'm in power. And everybody said, like, okay. (laughs) The only problem is, after a 12-year stint in jail, he had kind of gotten forgotten about. Galante had a way overblown feel for himself. Like, he thought he was the absolute shit. Nobody's better than him. Nobody deserves to be boss as much as him. Nobody can stand next to him. He was the biggest. He was the baddest. He's the best gangster to ever walk the earth. And he just believed all this and nobody else did. So he gets out and everybody's like, wait, Carmine Galante who? Like, 12 years is a really long time. Think of all the things that happen in 12 years. Like, okay, Okay, 12 years ago was 2010. 2010 is so long ago. Like, okay, for instance, in 2010, the BP oil spill happened. That was where they sprayed like tons and tons and tons of oil into the ocean. Do you guys remember that? Because like, I'm sure that if you do remember it, you're like, oh shit, I forgot that happened because that's what I was saying. So when he comes out, everybody's like, oh yeah, Carmine Galante, that's crazy. I haven't thought about him in so long. So he comes out and he's like, yeah, I'm back and thinking everybody's going to be like dropping at his feet. And everybody's kind of like, oh, dope, like, cool. Good to see you, bro. The rest of the world is just like going on about their lives. They don't see him as the biggest and the baddest. The families had begun to evolve past him since he was virtually useless. He's sitting in jail. Like, he's not a part of the mafia anymore. He is. He's in jail as a mafia member, but he's not integral in day-to-day going-ons. A sixth family had emerged, and that is Nicolo Rizzuto's Canada family. I'm not really going to go into him because I told you in the beginning, I have six episodes fully researched and ready to go, and Rizzuto is one of them, so I'm not going to go into him whatsoever. But his family pops up at this time. It's not really a sixth family. See, like, there's a book that's written, like, the sixth family of the mafia. It's not the sixth family. Like, if there was going to be a sixth family, it would be Jersey or Chicago, not Canada. Like, that's a freaking joke. It makes me crazy when people do shit like that. Like, Jersey has been around since forever. And Chicago was around with Al Capone. Like, absolutely not would Canada be the sixth family. But this family comes to power. And when this family came to power, they filled a lot of the holes that Carmine Galante not being there anymore left. 
Galante. This is actually kind of ironic because Galante, he pretty much created the Canada family. When he was in Canada, he created this family to manage his distribution and, and the heroin and the French connection. So he creates this family and then he goes to jail and then everybody kind of forgets about him and the family that he created just circumvented him and went straight to the families of New York and just got rid of him as a middleman. The rest of the holes had been filled with the zips that had come over and immigrated to America. A lot of them which Galante had brought over in the first place. And through like direct connections between Bonanno and Gambino and the drug ties that Galante had set up. So just pretty much like Galante had made sure to be the point person and now Galante goes to jail. So they're not about to stop all of their trafficking and drug trafficking and money making for 12 years because Galante got locked up. No, they circumvented him, they went directly to each other, and now there's no need for Galante anymore. While Rastali was in jail, he did absolutely everything he could to hold on to power from inside prison, but Galante went after Rastali's family. And I'm not talking about his mafia family, I'm talking about his family family. Rastali's son-in-law was killed on the streets by Galante's hitman, and that right there, like, that was enough. That made Rastali yield leadership to Galante. He was like, you know what? You want it that bad? Have it. I don't want it anymore. I don't want any of my loved ones to die. There's nothing I can do from in here. So yeah, you want leadership? Take it. See if you enjoy it. The commission never okayed this power grab, but nobody was really telling him no either. So like, they didn't say yes, but they didn't say, go sit down in the corner, little boy. Like, they just kind of watched and saw what was going to happen. Galante had eight members of the Gambino family killed in order to take control of the drug trafficking operations. And he did this because he felt like it was owed to him. And it was, in a, in a sense. He created all of these relationships, and then they circumvented him because he went to jail. On one hand, it's his fault because he went to jail, he got caught, and he disappeared, and they're not going to stop their business. On the other hand, he should be compensated for creating the relationships in the first place. So he comes out, he starts killing Gambino members. He hates Gambino, and he starts taking these men down. So at this point, eight members of the Gambino family have been killed. He also starts to blow up pizza parlors in Jersey, in Pennsylvania, in Delaware, in New York. Any business owned by a Gambino family member is now fair game and he's coming after it. Him going after pizza parlors, it's it's his way of getting the Gambino family out of the cheese business. So pretty much the Gambinos have pizza parlors as their front for going and doing legitimate business in selling, buying, all that stuff in cheese. And Galante wants all of that business so he blows up anything that's owned by a Gambino family member that also has anything to do with cheese. Other than these calculated moves that he's making against the Gambino family, Family, he's just kind of going on with his life as like an old man. He was known for like walking his dog. His dog was a cute little brown and white dog. He was a cutie. So because he was such a star, now he's out of jail and the media is taking pictures and letting everybody know what he's doing. He's like in the society section and they're taking pictures of him like walking his dog in Greenwich Village and everybody is just reporting that he looks more like a grandpa than a godfather. Like it's ridiculous to look at his reputation versus what he looks like when he's just out and about. Now everything seems to come to a close when he's arrested on March 3rd, 19 
1978 for consorting with known criminals. It's the age-old, like, we want to arrest you, but we don't have a reason to. So we saw you with somebody that we haven't indicted, but we know, we know he's a criminal. He's well known to be a criminal. So we're going to arrest you for being seen with him. They didn't even arrest him for like consorting with felons. It was known criminals. So that means that who they were charging him with was never indicted on a crime. And pretty much that is just other Bonanno family gangsters. Like it's not anybody crazy. And because of this, he's thrown back in jail. He goes to the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. And thankfully for Galante, almost a year later, the judge ruled against the government, which is is very, very rare. The judge says that they illegally revoked his parole and he was immediately released. One weird thing that I noticed is that everywhere that it's reported, it's reported that he did just under two years in jail. Some people say 17 months, some people say two years, but it doesn't make any sense because I see newspaper clippings when he was arrested and I see newspaper clippings when he was released. He was arrested May 3rd, 1978, and he was released February 28th, 1979. So unless I'm doing my math wrong, unless I'm going crazy, that's not even a full year. I don't know why everybody reports it as two years, because 78 to 79, and I'm talking newspaper clippings, not like, oh, I saw it in an article. No, people that are reporting that he was arrested and people that are reporting that he was released. May 3rd, 1978 to February 28th, 1979. So it was a year. It was under a year. I don't know. I don't know why people say that. I don't know. While he was in jail, he was placed under federal protection because the prison got word that another mafia family had like put a contract on his head and wanted him dead. So they put him into federal protection. He, like every other mafia member since he became a lawyer, used Roy Cohn to represent him in his trial. Roy Cohn is literally just the mafia lawyer. Every time you see a mafia guy go to jail, they use Roy Cohn to represent them and they always get out. He's a great lawyer. Roy Cohn actually ended up getting tried later on for his involvement with the mafia. He got tried at the same trial as John Gotti and Sammy the Bull. That's one of the reasons that Sammy flipped was that he said he didn't have Roy Cohn as his lawyer and that's what made him feel like he was definitely going to lose because Roy Cohn had also been indicted and was in this trial with him rather than representing him. During a trial, the judge ruled that Galante's constitution constitutional rights had been violated because minimum due process standards had not been met during parole revocation hearings. So now he gets out of jail and it's February of 1979. He steps back out on the streets and immediately continues killing people and just acting like a whole ass fool. He's acting like, you know, his shit doesn't stink and he's running around saying whatever he wants to say, doing whatever he wants to do and not giving an absolute shit about anybody who has anything to say about it. Now, obviously everybody's kind of going nuts over this. People are dropping like flies and nobody's getting permission to kill these people. Like in the mafia, you need need to get permission to kill another made member and he's not even bothering he's just going around killing people because he feels like it anybody that's from the wrong family which a lot most of them are from the Gambino family he's waging a full-ass war against the Gambino family by himself so anybody that has any significant stake in drug rackets or rackets of any kind in Brooklyn 
they're all fair game. They're all dying. Their businesses are being blown up. Everything is going really bad for anybody that looks at Galante wrong. And after a while, it starts looking like if somebody doesn't do something, Galante is going to take everything over. And he's going to do everything he's been spouting about. Everybody's just been sitting back and being like, yeah, okay, whatever, whatever, keep talking. And just allowing him to run his mouth. But at this point, people are dying left and right. And it's getting to the point that he might actually take over. He's not even out of jail that long. And he's got a huge hold in the narcotics market already. He already has his hand dipped in everything. He's making money in the porn industry. He's making money from loan sharking, labor rackets, legit like a cookie cutter mafioso. On top of that, after the newspaper article had been written about him, dude is super famous and he's regularly like the front page news story. That's a really bad thing for the mafia. When people get too popular, it brings too much heat to the families. It's extremely bad for everybody involved because if there's a lot of attention, there's attention from the public and you know, that's great. Oh, I can sign autographs. But that also means a lot more attention from the authorities. Galante owns a dry cleaning company in Little Italy, and he uses this to clean his money. At this point in 1979, Gambino had passed away. So Gambino passed away in 1976. So because Gambino no longer exists, and Galante looked at Gambino as like the capo de tutti capi, he's running around telling everybody that that's going to be him next. He's the boss of bosses. And because Gambino's no longer around, he is now the boss of bosses. Gambino dying was actually a really big deal for Galante. He hated Gambino. I'm talking hated him. He hated his ideas. He hated his rules. He hated his ideals. He hated the way he ran shit. He hated the way he looked. Like, he hated his hair. He hated everything about this man. Now, for a normal person in the mafia, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. You're not even in the Gambino family. Why do you care? But Gambino had a chair on the commission. So it really did matter. It did have an effect on him. So at the end of the day, him dying mattered. It was a very good thing for Galante. Gambino and Galante, they just, they always clashed. They really disagreed on a lot of subjects. And the biggest one that they clashed and the biggest one that they argued about was Gambino Gambino's reluctance to allow any kind of drug dealing within the family. So Gambino is on the commission and the commission is the ones that are making decisions for the entire mafia. So what the commission says goes. So if the commission says no drug dealing, guess what? There's no drug dealing in the mafia. Galante's main revenue source is heroin. That's a huge problem for him. Another big problem is Gambino's refusal to let the families grow. Gambino closed the books, and if you know anything about the mafia, you know that there was a long period of time that the books were closed. They were not accepting new members. They were not making any new men. It was closed. Everybody that had a problem with that was all told, just wait until Gambino dies. As soon as Gambino dies, we'll open the books again and we'll start making new members. So Gambino is solely responsible for not allowing new members to be made. And remember that Galante, he's bringing zips over from Italy. He's making new families in Canada. He is trying to expand the mafia. So Gambino turning around and saying, nope, no new members, that's an issue for him. He viewed it as veering away from the traditions of the mafia. That's the whole point of the mafia is to make new members and have a family, but he's not allowing the family to grow. At this point, the mafia is starting to turn into a more white-collar crime sort of place. It's turning into less 
viciousness, less shootings, less breaking knees. It's turning into like a more calm and collected way to go about things. They're going legit. They don't want to all be sitting in jail all the time. But Galante, he's just stuck in the old world and he wants to kill people. He wants to take people out. He wants the drug deal. He, he wants it all. And the Mafia didn't want drug dealing because when you drug deal, if you get arrested, you get a huge, huge sentence. And a lot of times when you get life sentences, that's what makes people flip. In order to reduce the likelihood of that happening, they said, okay, no drug dealing, because if there's no drug dealing, there's no life sentences. If there's no life sentences, there's no flipping. And everybody had started to rat at this time. So no more. That's it. No more drug dealing. Cut it out. So Galante's pissed. And the number one reason, the number one reason that he hated Gambino was for Gambino's part in the decision to oust Joe Bonanno. Joe Bonanno was Galante's mentor. He was Bonanno's protege. He loved Bonanno so much. So when he found out that Bonanno had been ousted from the mafia, he came out swinging. He came out talking all this shit. He came out killing people and it was all because Bonanno had been ousted. Eventually, the bosses of all the families were starting to get nervous so one decided to do something about it. Frank Thierry, the current boss of the Genovese family, started bailing out the rest of the bosses and the higher-ups and the families to see how they would feel about Galante catching a bullet. He even went to the extent of reaching out to Joe Bonanno, which is crazy because Galante is Bonanno's protege. You would think that would be a hard no, but he got the nod. He got the nod from everybody. Everybody okayed Galante going. Thierry also knew, though, that nothing that he said would be half as powerful as anything that was said by one man and one man only, Rastali. He is the last boss that had been recognized by the commission as a boss of this family. He's sitting in prison and this dude is out here killing people left and right and saying he's the boss of the family and he's the boss of the mafia. So he goes to Rastali. So after he goes to Rastali, Rastali comes back to the commission and Rastali is like, all right, listen, like, I hate this dude. He killed my son-in-law. He's killing anybody in the mafia that looks at him wrong. He's saying he's the boss when he never got that permission. He's not getting permission to kill all these people. He's swearing he's the next boss of bosses. And I'm sitting in jail. I can't murk this dude. I can't do anything about it. Please do something. Like, how are you allowing this to happen? This is crazy. Exactly as Thierry had expected, once it came out of Rastali's mouth, the commission quickly gave the official nod for Galante to get clipped. According to Persico, he was the only one out of the four bosses to vote in favor of keeping Galante alive. So now you got five bosses, and Persico is the only one that says, eh, maybe it's not such a good idea to kill him. You also don't know if that's true. It could have been unanimous, and Persico was just like, oh yeah, I didn't do that, no. You know, like, who knows? According to Persico, he was outnumbered, and the official price was put on Galante's head. At this point, honestly, it was like Galante was antagonizing them into killing him. He's running all over town saying that he would never be killed because nobody in any of the families has the balls to kill him. Like, what do you think is gonna happen, bro? Like, this is the mafia. You're not the only person with a set of balls. Galante had two bodyguards, Baldo Amato and Cesar Bonventre, which Bonventre, that is Bonanno's cousins. But it doesn't really matter either way because Bonanno 
Toronto gave the okay. In July of 1979, only a few months after that initial okay came from the commission, 69-year-old Galante headed for a restaurant, Joe and Mary's Italian-American restaurant, at 205 Knickerbocker Avenue in Bushwick, Brooklyn. He headed there in a brown Lincoln passenger car. He had Amato and Bonventre with him. When the three got out of the car, they went into the restaurant, and they sat down to eat with Leonard Coppola, another Bonanno family member, and Giuseppe Toronto. Toronto was the owner of the restaurant, and he was Galante's cousin. So he sat to eat with him. He went to this particular restaurant on this particular day because the owner, Torino, his cousin, was leaving for vacation to Italy, and he was having a bon voyage party. As he was sitting on the back patio, three men came up into the back patio that he was at and started shooting. They all had ski masks on, and they had both handguns and shotguns. And three of the men that were sitting, Galante, Capola, and Torino, were killed instantly. They, like, didn't even have a chance to pull their weapons. This happened so fast fast that it was just they didn't even know it was coming his left eye was blown out and this man had bullet holes all over his body like i'm talking this man was a strainer by the time they were done with him if you've ever seen the picture of galante laying dead it's a very very famous picture if you've ever seen it you know that galante had a cigar in his mouth that is not the case though he wasn't smoking a cigar if for no other reason he was eating Nobody's going to have a cigar in their mouth when they're eating. So, no, he didn't have a cigar in his mouth. But the people that shot him came up and put a cigar in his mouth as, like, you know, a, a sign. Like, hey, this is what you're known for. So they put a cigar in his mouth. So the pictures of his dead body, they have him having a cigar in his mouth. And I only know that because, like, there's multiple people that are in the mafia. So I'm going to listen to people that were in the mafia. Even if they're now rats, why would they lie? You know, like, why, why? They wouldn't. So when I hear people that were in the mafia even if they're rats now i'm gonna believe them when they say the man didn't have a cigar in his mouth especially because it wouldn't make sense who has a cigar in their mouth while they're eating the funny thing is for all his bluster for all his shit talking for everything that he did in his life galante is way more famous for the pictures of him dead than for anything he did while he was alive the reason for that is because the media was actually able to get graphic graphic photos before they covered the body so it, it isn't often that you see pictures of a dead body. Like, it's not often. Most of the time, the media takes pictures of the body bag, or they'll put a picture of him when he was younger, but the media went crazy with pictures of this guy lying dead with bullets all over his body. So that's why the picture of him dead got so famous. In these pictures, his hand is placed in a position where it does look like he could have been going for his gun, but I, I kind of doubt it. I don't think he was going for his gun. It's probably just how his hand fell, like, on his stomach. There's also a pack of Marbreads sitting on the table next to where he was sitting. So that kind of tells me that he was really comfortable. You know, he wasn't expecting anything bad to happen. He took his cigarettes out of his pocket. He was chilling. Like, he's just hanging out, having a little party. He has no idea there's a hit out on him. Which I'm kind of surprised about because usually the FBI informs you. Like, all the time. As soon as they hear. Most people that get killed, they know that they're getting killed. They know there's a hit out on them. And unless he knew and just didn't care thought that nobody would actually make the move to do it i don't know but he was way too relaxed police came to the conclusion that amato and bonventre may have taken part in the hit they're pretty sure that they did 
They were able to see through ballistic evidence that they had something to do with it. But no one was ever indicted for the killing. The two bodyguards walked away completely unscathed. And if they weren't in on the hit, they probably would have gotten killed. They're bodyguards. Their whole point is to put their body in between the person and the person shooting. So if they walk away unscathed, they had something to do with it. There's also not one bullet anywhere indicating that any of the bodyguards shot back, which again is the whole point of a bodyguard. If they were doing their job, they would have been shooting back. They didn't put out one bullet. So they were in on it. They strolled out of the restaurant unharmed, unfazed, like, oh, do 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 do. If you're a bodyguard and the person that you're bodyguarding is killed and you don't pop one shot off and you don't catch one bullet, you're a part of the plan. Amato, one of those bodyguards, he ended up moving up pretty significantly in the mafia after Galante died. The other one, Bonventre, he moved up as well, but he was killed in 1984. This one was pretty brutal. They only knew that he was killed because pieces of his body ended up showing up in two separate oil drums in New Jersey. It's assumed that he was killed to keep him quiet about his part in the Galante hit. Sometimes you don't even have to make somebody think that you're going to talk. People just want to tie up loose ends, so that might be why he died. Galante had multiple family members go on to make the news for committing mafia-related crimes, and that's pretty normal. Like, Bonanno had his son, like, Gotti had his son. Most mafia members, especially ones that go up as high as these guys, they have family after them that gets involved in the mafia. It's so common. Because people grow up in that life, and if you grow up in that life, it's something that you admire and you want to do, so... It's sad, but it's just, it's a loop. It's a loop, and you're born into it, and it just happens. One of them was arrested in a mafia roundup in a trash hauling probe, and one had killed an innocent kid. The headlines just are not pretty for this family. All in all, Carmen Galante is believed to have taken part in the death of around 100 people. And that's not like, oh, I knew about it. That's like either he killed them or he ordered their death. 100 people. Think about that number. Put 100 people in a room. That is such a large amount of people. Like, that's probably more than every serial killer that you've ever heard of combined. So that's all I have for this wackadoodle-doo, Carmine Galante. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. I can't tell you how happy I am to be back, and I'll definitely be here again next week. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!